0: like to turn to Psalm 145, that's where we're going to be spending our time today. I'm sorry that this is the only week you don't get a guest preacher and you have to deal with me. (laughs) Psalm 145, turn there and I'll pray for us. Let me read it for us first. a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his works and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, teach us to praise this morning. I ask that these words that David have written would, uh, would fill our heart with joy, would fill our heart with thousands of reasons to give you praise. That we may understand your worth, that we may understand your value, that we may give you honor that is due your name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There are times when I read the Scripture that I give an... Overwhelming sense that I am a big fraud. I read words like, Every day I will bless you, or words about continual meditation on God's word, or these promises of, I will do this, or I will do that, and sometimes my immediate feeling is that I am lying in my worship. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not confessing a loss of faith or even doubt in the truths of Scripture. What I am saying is that there is sometimes a disconnect between what I know to be true and my heart, with all its will and emotions and desires, and it has a hard time catching up to what I know to be true. This is one of those weeks that my heart would have been more ready to sing, Why are you downcast, O my soul, rather than I will bless your name forever and ever. And I think some of this has been influenced by being a worship leader, For whatever reason, the praise songs are the upbeat ones, and the slow ones are the place for meditation and confession. Now, this isn't in itself bad. I do believe that praise is a call for celebration and triumphant sounds. But what I'm coming to terms with is that sometimes I judge my willingness to give praise from the state of my own emotions. And in my study of this passage, I've come to find that praise is not merely something that comes when you have a bubbly attitude or everything is sunshine and rainbows in your life. So whether you find yourself in a place of sorrow or in joy, we will find that the praise of God transcends our earthly circumstances. And praise comes in response to who God is, not in response to how I feel. As we approach this psalm, In the heading itself, we see a song of praise. Many atheists or opponents of the Christian faith have accused Christians by saying, how arrogant is this God that he forces his people to praise him? How needy, how narcissistic. I aim to make it apparent in the sermon today that David is under no coercion in these words that he has written. But he is so filled with awe that it pours forth in praise to God. And we must recognize that praise does not happen in a vacuum. Praise does not come from nothing, nor can it be generated in us by sheer force of will. Praise always comes in response to something. And we find in the passage today, because of who God is, we must respond in praise. Let's look again at verses 1 through 3. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Praise in its very nature is an act of celebration and flattery. We are making much of who God is. As we look through the psalm, we see David using many different words for praising. The ESV study Bible notes give us some help on some simple definitions of these words. He extols God, which is to tell of how great God is. He blesses him, which is to speak specifically of his generosity. He commends him, so he's speaking highly of his deeds. And then we see he declares, he meditates, he speaks, he pours forth, sings aloud, he gives thanks In writing this psalm, David is trying to put every word he can think of into his praise of God. And let this be our first point of instruction here. How can we expand our praise of God? In writing this psalm, David is using an acrostic format. Each verse begins with a word that starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And I must confess that in my worship of God, I am more likely to stay general in my praise but I go really deep in my needs and my requests. I wonder how readily I could fill up 26 verses of my own alphabet with another letter for each term. I bet David would even be able to come up with something for X and Q. (laughs) If we are to join in with David in exhausting our language to come up with words suitable to praise God, the first thing we must recognize is that it won't come without practice. Verse 2 reminds us that God's name is to be praised day in and day out for all eternity. Verse 3 reminds us that God's greatness is unsearchable. And unsearchable not in the sense that it is off limits, but quite the contrary. It is an invitation to try and find a bottom. Search out the boundaries. Look for an end day in and day out for eternity, and you will not find the end of His greatness. Unlike chips and salsa at your favorite restaurant, God's greatness is truly bottomless. (laughs) And there is no condescending look on your third or fourth attempt to find the bottom. (laughs) We must see that David has such rich words to speak about God because he's taken time to bask in his presence, to meditate on his word. He's prioritized bringing glory to God's name. And if we are to join in with David in this praise, the second thing we must understand, and this is the most important thing, is that praise is first and foremost a recognition of who God is. In our flesh, we can be tempted to think that we need to butter God up before we can ask him for things. As though he was your grandpa and you could just sweet talk him into getting your way. Thinking things like, well, I know if I really want God to hear my prayer about these health concerns or hear my prayer about safe travels, I better spend some time telling him how good he is. The irony is, when we think these things in our heart, it is actually the opposite of praise because it is misrepresenting the person, nature, and character of God. As I stated earlier, David is not under any coercion to praise God. Nor is he trying to coerce God with his praises. In reflecting upon God's character and action, David is so filled with affection for God that praise naturally pours out of him. When we praise God, it is also not just wishful thinking, hoping that God would actually be what we say he is. All of our praise is in response to whom he has shown himself to be and in celebration of his mighty deeds. If you look down to verses 14-20, through we see specific reasons for praise. The Lord upholds those that are falling. He gives food in due season. He opens His hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways, kind in His works. He is near to those who call. He fulfills the desires of His people. He hears their cries and saves them. The Lord preserves. Many accusations about our God from outsiders claim that God shows up on the scene and says, bow down and worship me, and then I'll think about giving you things. These ideas make him out to be some tyrannical dictator who puffs himself up on obligatory, half-hearted praise from feeble servants. But this is not our God. Think back to when God introduces himself to the nation of Israel. They were enslaved to the Egyptians. And God doesn't come to Moses and say, listen, I got an idea of how to get your people out of there, but it's going to cost you some praises up front. No, God said, I am going to deliver the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, and I will draw my people to myself all because of promises I made to their forefathers and out of my love, kindness, and faithfulness to follow through. In fact, the purpose is so that God would stand in such great contrast to the tyranny of rulers like Pharaoh. God does not need to command praise from his people. Praise is befitting of him because he has proven himself so praiseworthy. Our giving of praise to him is simply recognizing who he is and what he has done. And I think in a real way, our ability to praise him is in direct proportion to our understanding of Him. So let us have greater meditation on His character and His deeds, that He may receive the glory that is due His name. And if you're finding yourself praise deficient in His grace, God has seen it fit to give us the words of David here that instruct us in how and why we are to praise Him. But also serve as words for us to borrow until our heart catches up and too overflows with praise. Let's look at the next grouping of verses, four through seven. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty. And on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. In the book of Deuteronomy, we have the famous words of the Shema, which read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And the very next verse says this, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. This is one of many places in the Old Testament that we can point to where God directs the people of Israel to practice their worship with the next generation in mind. The children are included in the feasts and festivals. The children are to ask questions about the various sites they see and what God accomplished for his people there. God has set up this pattern that the worship of God would be passed from one generation to the next. And at the point that David is writing these words, he is the proof of hundreds of years of God's promises being passed down from one generation to another Even more so when we think of the effect of it being passed from one generation to the next to reach us today. Even still, we are to act diligently in trusting the gospel to the next generation. Scripture directs us first to think of our own children and the people in our household. But I want you to also consider this in relation to how the church is talked about in the New Testament. The church is considered a family. The household of faith, as it says in Galatians 6.10. We are one body, participating in one spirit. We are to consider one another as brothers and sisters, older men like fathers, older women like mothers. Paul calls Timothy and Titus his true children in the faith. We are to regard one another as members of the same family, and yet spiritually we are even closer than family. I draw your attention to this because entrusting to the following generation is far more than taking your kids to church, although that's certainly a good thing. When you look around this sanctuary, I want you to see brothers and sisters. I want you to see mothers and fathers. I want you to see parents and grandparents. We all have a responsibility to one another. One generation shall commend the Lord to another, This is not a passive thing. It doesn't happen by accident. Also, it's a verbal thing. Words must come out of our mouths from one generation to another. Look at verse 4 where it says, commend His works, declare His acts. Verse 6 says, they shall speak, and once again, declare. Verse 7 says, pour forth, sing aloud. Passages like this have been constantly on my heart over the last few years. The reason for this is I feel that Westchester is at a crossroads. We are celebrating 50 years of ministry here in this building, and we are deciding now what is going to characterize the ministry of the future. We did a survey two years back, and it revealed a startling truth about the demographics of our church 66% of the adults in our church are over the age of 51. At any age, we need to be thinking about what kind of legacy we are leaving to the next generation, but this is especially critical of the older age group here. The future leaders of this church are coming from a pool that is less than half the size of the generation that came before it, and to keep going for another generation, we're going to need elders and deacons and teachers. Amongst millennial Christians and Gen Z, there's a massive drop in church attendance, as well as an embracing of progressive or liberal theology in light of a world that is growing more and more hostile towards Christianity. And it seems like every week there's a new high-profile Christian who has announced that they are going through deconstruction in their faith. They no longer claim to be a believer. They're asking questions. They're exploring new options. I want you to see these are all discipleship issues. This is the fruit of either a lack of discipleship Or it's evidence of tradition and law being entrusted rather than the gospel. For one generation to commend to another, we must see one another as part of the same family and feel that responsibility that we have to one another. I say that we're at a crossroads because plenty of churches in America and plenty of churches around us in Des Moines will get to this place demographically and instead of investing in the next generation, they choose to just ride off into the sunset. One generation shall commend his works to another and declare his mighty acts. Let us adopt this, own, this understanding into our own hearts. Because when we see the fruit of this in our midst, we are going to shout with praise as David is doing. That God is showing himself faithful from generation to generation. Let us be about that praise but we cannot commend his works to another generation if we do not spend time together. We cannot speak the might of his deeds if we never talk to each other. Now, I would be remiss if I did not talk about the changes coming up in our adult Bible fellowship this fall. Those changes take place in exactly this context. The adult ministry team has set a new vision for us that we want to be about intergenerational discipleship. Because we see the biblical command as well as the practical need around us. I will go into more detail about this at our upcoming membership meeting in a week. But in brief, we're going to have three classes. And each of them will have teaching teams that span the generations and leadership teams that span the generations. And we do this in hopes of having each class with a diverse age range as well. Now, I want you to understand something. These changes are a structural change. And they provide more opportunity to learn and fellowship across the generations. However, these changes will not make discipleship happen. These changes will not make one generation declare his works to another. This will create an opportunity. But intergenerational discipleship will have to come from the heart. Intergenerational discipleship will only come out of a response of God's worth and character and deeds... Just as our meditations on Him should fill us with affection so that we overflow in praise, our reflection on God should cause it to well up inside us that says, I need to tell someone. I need to declare His awesome deeds. I need to tell of His goodness. I need to make sure the next generation knows this. I want to make sure they know how to tell the next generation after them how to declare His greatness, righteousness, and majesty. David is also very purposeful about the kinds of things that are being entrusted from one generation to another. His works, his mighty acts, his majesty, his deeds, his greatness, his goodness, his fame, his righteousness. Sometimes when we talk about what the older generation can pass down to the next, we focus on wisdom. Wisdom that is earned with age, and rightly so would be a good thing to pass down. However, The focus here is on the things that God has done, not the life lessons that I've learned along the way. See, my generation, we're content to learn car repairs from YouTube. We're learning how to cook from food blogs. Some of the best guitarists in the world have master classes online where I could actually learn from the guy that I want to sound like. But you know what the internet hasn't supplied yet? An older person who knows me, who walks through life with me, who prays for me and challenges me. Sure, I could listen to a sermon of a person declaring the works of God, but it hits different when that person knows you and cares about you and is invested in your life. The truth weighs differently when that's the case. And though I'm still young, I'm starting to grapple with the fact that there's another generation of adults already behind me. They think differently than me. They've experienced life differently than me. I'm already annoyed with their musical taste. (laughs) And my skinny jeans get mockery rather than cool points. (laughs) But listen, the only thing, the only thing that empowers me to declare the works of God to the next generation is that he is always and forever And the truth of his character and deeds has transcended hundreds of generations before me, and it's going to continue long after I'm dead. It is because he is worthy that we disciple others, not because we are able. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Once again, let us remember that it is in response to who God is that we bring Him praise. Here in these verses, responding to God is remembering His attributes, in particular, His goodness. These words here are vitally important to our understanding of who God is. Right here is a succinct theology of the attributes of God. And these phrases have been important throughout Israel's history. And this is actually woven like a thread through the Old Testament. And this is recited as a creed of sorts that the nation can meditate on who God is. I bring this up as vital importance because our whole disposition toward God rests in our understanding of who he is and his nature. There's a popular understanding today that the God of the Old Testament is full of wrath and anger and judgment. But then when Jesus came on the scene, he comes along and we learn the truth about what love is. And this portrays Jesus and God the Father as disconnected opponents, rather than Jesus being the very image of God the Father in the flesh. This kind of theology, which is really blasphemy, it is so unfounded because of verses like this. David is not making this up here. This understanding is built upon centuries of God revealing himself to his people, and once again... It is not under any kind of coercion that he brings this praise, but instead recognition of who God is. So let us follow in suit and write this understanding of God on our hearts, that we may know him and praise him for who he is. Let's dive into this a little bit. The Lord is gracious and merciful. A classic understanding of grace versus mercy is that grace is a gift that is undeserved, and mercy is withholding a punishment that is deserved. Saying God is gracious is declaring His generosity and His care, that He freely gives to us without requirement or earning. To say that He is merciful is to tell of His compassion and forgiveness. His disposition is seeing us as needy and broken, and He is moved with love toward His creation. And then the next line is there to amplify the first. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In the Hebrew, this is my favorite idiom. The way he says God is slow to anger is to say that the Lord has a long nose. And this would probably be the equivalent of our way of saying someone has a long fuse rather than a short fuse with their temper. God does not get riled up. He doesn't get caught off guard. He does not bring wrath out of a grumpy demeanor. Instead of abounding in anger, He is abounding in loving kindness toward His people. This is the God that we serve. He has not changed. This has always been Him. And verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all. This idea of God's goodness is so critical for us. When Eve was tempted by Satan in the Garden of Eden, what Satan was doing was putting this question into, God's, or into Eve's mind. Will God actually do what he says he will? Is he withholding something better from you? The question is, is God actually good? The question entered into human history thousands and thousands of years ago, and still today we are trying to answer that question. The witness of Scripture is a resounding, yes, he is good. Well, what about in this circumstance? Yes, He is good. What about in pain and suffering? Yes, He is good. What about in sickness and in death? Yes, He is good. What about in grief and loss? Yes, He is good. The problem that we have is that we look to other people Or we look to our bank accounts, or we look at our jobs, or we look at relationships, and we say, are you good? And for a while, they're good. But ultimately, they fail us. And then we put that insecurity back on God and say, are you going to fail me in the same way? No. The Lord is good, and he is abounding in steadfast love. And then we have this secondary statement that amplifies the first. His mercy is over all that He has made. We can view His goodness in relationship to the mercy that He shows over His creation. You see, it is in our brokenness and our sinfulness that we run to other created things and we expect them to be God. It is in our sinfulness that we would even claim that God is not good. When we consider all of this, when we consider the rebellion, the idolatry, the way that man rejects God, this is where we see the heart of God's character. God's demeanor toward us is in in response to our sinfulness. His demeanor is mercy. He's slow to anger. He is gracious. He is abounding in love. We know He is good because we know we are not good, and yet He has given us mercy. Once again, Jesus and God the Father are not opposed to one another, and their work is not opposed. When we understand that for all eternity prior to the incarnation, that God is loving and kind and filled with mercy toward His creation, it actually creates the context for Jesus to make sense at all. In Jesus, we get a visible, tangible understanding of God's grace, mercy and kindness and love toward His creation. Just think about this. David was filled with praise just by reflecting on God's care and salvation to the people of Israel and the giving of His law. Imagine the words his heart would be filled with when he considers that same God stooped low to His creation, took on flesh to be just like you and me and willingly laid down His life to forgive the sins of His people. This is a work that is beyond all imagination. And yet, it is 100% consistent with God's character. When we consider our sinful state and God's goodness toward us, that should fill us with gratitude, that should stir our affections for His mercy, and we should pour forth His praise. The heart of our praise is His goodness. When we train ourselves to ponder God and the reasons to give Him praise, It should not be something that we are reluctant to do. When we consider the character of God, we should recognize that He is worthy of our praise despite our emotional state. If our hearts are not eager to pour out praise to God, then we need to remind our hearts who God is. As we explore the character of God, we're going to find an unsearchable depth of goodness, infinite reasons to praise Him day in and day out forever and ever and as we continue this exploration, may we find increasing awe at a God who is so good that He would choose mercy upon us lowly sinners out of a heart filled with loving kindness over all that He has made. Let us pray together. Father God, may we be filled with words of praise and affection for who You are as we sit and wonder with awe at the works that You have done. God, You are so worthy of praise. You are so worthy of honor. You are so worthy of us declaring Your mighty deeds from generation to generation. May You be glorified. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let us stand together.